Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Amen. Let's pray tonight as we come to the time of the preaching of God's Word. If you did not get a handout, make sure someone goes to grab you a handout for tonight so you can follow along. In Ephesians 5, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Thank you, Father, for your inerrant, inspired, infallible word. We come now to hear your voice from the Apostle Paul. I ask that as we do, your Holy Spirit would take what we read and learn and plant it deep in our hearts that we might bear fruit, keeping with repentance. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Matt. Pastor Matt, show you a little bit of how the sausage is made here. Uh, I don't know why Zane told him that he sang that song too slow, but I, I just, <laughs> those of you know, yeah, was not Zane. And I did not say you sing it too slow. I said it could be faster. Yeah. Don't add to or take away, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we'll look at verses 22 through the, per- the first part of chapter 6. And as I said this morning, this is our second to the last message in the book of Ephesians. And since September, when we started our evening worship services in this way, uh, we have journeyed through the whole book of Ephesians by the end of May when we conclude in chapter 6. What does the love and the blessing of God that we saw in chapter 1 look like? Back in chapter 1, we talked about the blessings of God that are ours through predestination and election and adoption and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, redemption in Christ's blood. We unpacked all those treasures, right, that we have in Christ from God the Father. And then from then, we've looked at how those things are unpacked and unfolded and lived out in the local church. That the blessings of God come to us in salvation We've seen what they look like in the body life of the church from chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 16. And we've seen what they look like in everyday life from chapter 4, verse 17 until where Brother Stan left us off with last time in chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to continue in that vein today. What does the blessing of God look like in our personal lives today, namely in the home? The importance of sound doctrine for the local church cannot, it can't be overstated. You need sound doctrine, sound theology, biblical foundations for what we believe and why we believe it. But if we have those things in place and yet we don't live out those truths, we have all the sound doctrine in the world, but that doctrine never turns into how we live and how we apply that doctrine to our lives, then the doctrine is of no use to us. The whole purpose of the epistles is to give us sound biblical doctrine that unfolds into how we live sound lives. Theologians have said it like this. Good orthodoxy, that's right belief, is no good without good orthopraxy, which means good practice. Orthodox doctrine should lead us to orthopraxy and how we live and how we 
worship God with our lives. We've seen that unfold in the book of Ephesians, in the body of Christ, our personal lives, and now we come to the Christian home. Now, I want to tell you up front, I I preached this from Colossians, probably almost, well, a little over a year ago. I think last February, we were in Colossians in this same vein. And just a few weeks ago, we did this similar sermon from 1 Peter about wives and husbands and slaves and masters in the home. You'll remember all those good things. I hope that I'll come to it with a different angle tonight, sort of where we've come in the music to this point, the church and Christ and the bride. We'll see all that unfold tonight. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you in the land, and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as, the, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So a few questions to guide our discussion tonight. What does God have to say to wives here? Husbands, children, parents, bondservants, and masters. What does God say to, let's shorten it up, the Christian home? What does God say to the Christian household? What does God have to say, and what does any of that behavior have to do with the gospel? And that opening chunk of solid theology that we got from Paul. Well, number one, let's look at the first section in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives and husbands. And at the beginning in verse 22, we come back to that ever-popular command for wives to submit to their husbands, to come under, literally to be placed under. And we go back and listen to uh, the, the sermon from Colossians from last February and then 1 Peter a couple weeks ago. You'll hear we talked about submission, being placed under, subjugation, obedience, and humility. And just to rehearse some of these things, this is not a matter of value, It's not a matter of worth. This is not a matter of value or worth, but is a matter of God's design. 
It's a matter of God's design. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, when God says, let us make man, humanity, in our image, and he made them in his image, what does it say? Male and female. So both male and female are created equal in the image and likeness of God. There is no lesser degree of the image of God on females as there are males, both created in the image and likeness of God. Not a matter of value, but a matter of God's design. Also remember as we look at this command that the command is not women submit to men. That is not the command. The command is wives submit to your own husbands. Wives submit to their own husbands. So this really isn't even about a pecking order in terms of gender. Not about that at all. It's God's design for the Christian family. And in turn, God's design for the church. And in God's design for family and marriage, in God's design, he says the husband is to be the head. The husband is to be the head. He says even as Christ is the head of his church. Even as Adam was the head of Eve, we saw Adam created first, and then Eve was created to be his helper. Paul says this shows us that relationship between the head and the helper. We also see the first hint of a bigger picture that is coming later. A picture that takes us beyond marriage, beyond wives, beyond husbands. Paul says this is primarily, in verse 23, this is primarily about Christ as head of his church, and as the savior of his people. So from the very beginning, you need to think bigger, definitely, than just women submit to men. It's not that. Wives submit to your own husbands. What is this a picture of? Christ as head of his church. So from the very beginning, Paul is building it in that framework. And this is how we should think of it. That it goes beyond just a mere difference between men and women, male and female, even goes beyond the difference between husbands and wives. Those are, those are important distinctions. It goes to show something about Jesus and his relationship to his church. And who would see that relationship between Christ and his church and object to it as if it was something domineering or misogynistic? Who would say, wives, submit to your husbands just as the church submits to Jesus because he is its head and cry foul on Jesus being the head of his church as if that was something sexist or misogynistic. Nobody would do that. And so from the very beginning, Paul wants to paint it within that framework. Just as Christ is the loving Savior and head of his people, the church, so the husband must be the head of his home, including his wife. We see there not a picture of sexism, or misogyny, we see a beautiful relationship of love, care, support, sacrifice, and joy. Wives, well, I have a simple question for you tonight. Does your relationship with your husband reflect those things? Wives, well, does your relationship with your husband reflect those things? Or is it more of a relationship that reflects Genesis 3.16. You remember just after the fall of man, God speaks to Adam and Eve with the curses. Remember what he says to Eve? I'll greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. Of course, we know that part. But what does, she, what does he say next? Your desire shall be for your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Does that first part more reflect your relationship with your husband than loving submission? Your desire for control, for leadership, for the headship that God gave him? Maybe usurping that and taking it for yourself. And you would say tonight, <laughs> maybe, you don't know my husband. Well, we'll get to your husband in a minute in the later verses. My question now is what about you? What about you? Is the picture that you paint with your husband one of a loving, beautiful picture of grace between Christ and his church? Or is it about you? Is it a joyful honoring of your husband, encouraging him, building him up, supporting him, enabling him? Or as it sadly so often tends to be in worldly marriages, is there bitterness, a begrudging attitude, a proud spirit that belittles your husband or tears him down or discourages him. And here's the secret, it slowly kills him. So many times there's the, there's the complaint that, well, my husband will not be the Christian leader that he's supposed to be, or my husband will not be the head that he's supposed to be for our family. And without taking any blame away from him, we'll get there in a minute. What are we doing, what are you doing as Christian wives to enable him to do that, to build him up and to encourage him to do that? And you might ask tonight, well, where do I start? Where do I begin with that as a Christian wife? And I'm afraid tonight I can't give you a bullet point list here. But I can tell you where to start. With loving, joyful, gracious submission. Coming under your husband not so as to be crushed underneath him, but so that you may lift him up as a support. Now, if we see there a temptation for wives to fall into that trap of Genesis 3.16, to, to desire the place of their husband, we also see the desire for husbands to fall into the trap of Genesis 3.16. Not only did God say, your desire shall be for your husband, what did he say about the husbands after the fall? You shall rule over them. And this is not a blessing. This isn't God saying, you'll desire his place, but he'll lord it over you in a good way. It's a bad thing with domineering, abusive lordship. So that the picture of the curse we see in Genesis 3.16 is a mutual pulling away at the fabric of creation. A mutual bucking of God's design. God says, here's what will happen. Wives will want the place of their husbands, while the husbands will lord authority over their wives. Both of those are pictured in the curse. And that is the picture of the curse, listen, that is to be quelled with the gospel of Jesus. That's why back in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we see it. We're not going to read all that, but you, you see this beautiful picture of walls being torn down. And yeah, Paul is talking primarily there about Jews and Gentiles, but he says all walls of hostility, all animosity, all bitterness, all anger has been dealt with through the blood of Jesus. 
And if Jesus' blood is strong enough to overcome those hostilities between Jews and Gentiles as strong as they were then, how much stronger is the blood of Jesus to overcome those hostilities between Jew and Gentile, slave or free? Surely it's strong enough to deal with those issues between a husband and his wife. As godly wives submit in loving devotion to their husbands, even, Paul says, verse 25, as husbands love their wives. It goes both ways here. It's interesting when the world comes against what I'll call conservative Christianity that upholds this picture of male and female and a wife submitting and a husband being the head. When the, when the world looks at that and, and scoffs and says how sexist or whatever, they fail to go to this part, don't they? They want to stop with the wife submit to your husbands and scoff at how ridiculous and outdated that is without going to verse 25. Also, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You cannot see the picture of verses 22 through 24. You can't see the picture of a loving wife submitting to her husband without verses 25 through 33. They go together. Loving submission and the sacrificial love of the husband. And if this picture is going to mean anything, we have to understand that this love that the husband should have for his wife is not just any love. It is as Christ loved the church. It would have been fine to say, husbands, also remember to love your wives. But he takes it one step further to the ultimate degree. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the whole picture is the wife, like the bride of Christ, submitting herself to her husband as the church, the bride of Christ, submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. Loving, adoring, honoring submission. As the husband adores and cherishes and sacrifices for his bride as Jesus would do. What does loving submission look like, Christian wives? What does loving submission look like when you are loved by a husband who loves you, as Paul says, as himself? Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What kind of submission would we foster in our wives if we loved them as much as we did ourselves? And then turn that picture on his head. What kind of love would that look like from a husband that is empowered by that kind of adoring and loving and godly submission? So just as much as in the curse... There's this temptation to mutually pull away and break from God's design and creation. When things are restored to the gospel, you see this mutual building up of this beautiful picture of creation and the gospel. Just as much as Genesis 3.16 says that wives will want to pull away while the husbands will want to domineer, The picture we have in the gospel is a loving submission from the wife and a self-sacrificing love from the husband. Husbands tonight, here's your question. Are you contributing to this picture together with your wife? Or 
are you demanding from her? Demanding in an authoritarian, lording over kind of way. If this kind of love and submission and humility and grace is expected and demanded in the church, we've looked at this, right? Be united. Be one in the body of Christ. There is no more hostility. And if those are God's principles and demands of his people in the corporate body of the church, how much more so are those principles for the home? Bearing with one another in love, striving for unity in the bond of peace, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4. So husbands, are you fostering this in your relationship with your wife and in your family? Is the local church a priority for you and your family? Are you loving your wife as your own body? I would encourage you tonight, while I can't give a bullet point list of what to do to make things right, these are simple places to start. Wives praying that God would give you grace to lovingly submit to your husband and encouraging them and enabling them, husbands then, so that you can love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We move on now to children and parents as we come into chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we see this as a secondary relationship in the home. Paul started at the top, husbands and wives. And now we come to the secondary relationship in the home. But it's also mutual. Just as Paul said, wives, husbands, now Paul will say, okay, children, and now parents, and namely, fathers. There is a mutual direction of love and submission and obedience here. When it talks to children here in verse 1, it says, Obey your parents. This is the same general word that was used back in chapter 5, verse 22, when it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. Same general understanding. But with a key theme of listening or hearing to obey. Wives, submit to your husbands as to come under them lovingly in support and love as he is the head of the body, uh, the family, as Christ is the head of the church. Here it says, children, yes, submit to your parents, but this is more than just about a role of submission. This is about actually listening and doing what you're told as children of your parents. There is submission and there are roles of submission under parents, not just the father. Notice that Paul starts with parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands are the head of their wives and their family. And he begins this section by saying, Children, not just obey your mother, not just obey your father, but obey your parents. Children, obey your parents with this key theme of listening. There's an auditory command here. Hear, listen, take to heart, and then do it. One of our conversations with Anna is constantly, listen, pay attention. And what are, what are the children? You know, you, you, everybody has this child in their family, I think. I heard what you said. We understand that you heard us, which makes this problem even bigger. Because you have heard us, but you're not doing anything. So I need you not just to hear but to listen and to obey. That is the picture that we see here when we see children obey your parents. Not just hear them, 
as if, you know, Charlie Brown's mom, wah, 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 but actually hear the words and do the words, the same obedience we give to God, children give your parents. And Paul reminds his hearers here, this is nothing new. He repeats from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, this is part of the law itself. Children, honor your father and mother. Part of the Ten Commandments themselves. Now on the other side of that coin, just as we saw wives submit and husbands love, here we see children obey, but I want you to notice something in verse 4. It doesn't say parents do not provoke your children to anger. There's a direct command here to fathers. It's interesting that the address is to fathers specifically. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey your parents. Fathers specifically do not provoke your children to anger. It's also interesting that it's a negative command. All the other commands have been positive. Do this, do this. But here we have this negative command to fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now it's probably in reference to what we see in verse 4 when it uses the word discipline. That as you raise and as you discipline and as you instruct your children, which isn't primarily the responsibility of the father, don't get me wrong, but it is primarily the responsibility of the father. And as you do that with your children, fathers, Paul says, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes his church, just as you, the husband, nourish and cherish your wife, so you ought also to love and to nourish and cherish your children in their raising. That is, as Paul says, not provoking them to anger. Word literally means exasperating. Not exasperating them in this discipline. That is, exhausting them and discouraging them in the discipline. Now, don't get Paul wrong, don't get me wrong. The discipline's not always going to be popular with your children. The discipline's not going to be welcomed all the time by your children. But there is a difference between laying on hard discipline for hard lessons to be learned and exasperating and exhausting and discouraging and tearing down your children. Just as God's discipline of his own children, you and me, is undergirded with love and with a purpose, listen, so too our discipline and raising of children must be toward something. This is not merely retributive, punitive, punishment though there are times for that you did this wrong here's your punishment but all discipline as Paul says in verse 4 should be with the the undergirding theme of instruction what of the Lord not mere spankings not mere timeouts just to get it done you did your time you're done but to point them to something beyond that to point them to a goal and to a purpose which is to be like Christ. How easy is it for us to degrade discipline and instruction and, quote, bringing them up? How easy it for, and I'm, I'm talking as a parent, right? How, how easy is it for us to degrade that 
into mere lashing out in anger and into mere impatience with them. Just as husbands are called to be the head of the wife in love, Christ's love, so fathers are to father their children like God. Neither of these that Paul, Paul tells us today, again, there, there's no bullet point list here because all of our situations and our personalities and our families are different. There's no magical formula that creates a perfect family. Well, if I'll just do this and I'll just do this and we'll just get this together and we'll just do this together, then everything will be fine and we'll be a perfect little family. It doesn't work. It will never work that way until glory. But rather, we see principles and patterns that are to be exercised, that are to be worked out, that are to be built toward the goal. And whether we're talking about husbands or wives and children and parents and fathers, no matter what we are, we have one goal, and that is to be like Jesus. And it all must be pointing us there, no matter the relationship. Number three, servants and masters. In verses 5 through 9 there of chapter 6, we see this address. And just like we talked about in 1 Peter, you know, go back and listen to that. Suffice it to say tonight that when we think about slaves and masters, we have a particular view of things as Americans with our troubled history of slavery, especially in the American South. That is not the picture we have here. It is not the picture in 1 Peter. It's not generally the picture we see in the Bible. Remember from 1 Peter, more often than not, what we were talking about is someone that is serving as an indentured servant to pay off a debt that they may later be free of, and they might purchase their freedom at any time when they pay off that particular debt. And such slaves and bond servants were treated as part of the family, which is why when you see in the New Testament, they're addressed right alongside of husbands and wives and children, and also these bond servants according to the Old Testament, which are to be treated with love as part of your family. So what we see here is not the American slave trade and slaves being told to submit to abusive masters. We don't see that at all. That is not the picture. It's not the same historical framework whatsoever. What we see here is actually more akin to an employer-employee relationship. Again, go back and listen to that sermon in 1 Peter for a little more information on that. And as with 1 Peter, there are other instructions here for bondservants and masters, starting there uh, in verse 5. Bondservants, obey. This is the same word we saw with children, obey. It's that submissive role that we see between a wife and her husband, but with that added theme of listening and doing as one has has been told. But Paul takes it further. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, that is, just doing what you do to be seen as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So Paul's instructions for bond servants, employees, those of us who serve other people in our jobs, is to do our jobs not out of mere obligation or mere duty, but with glad and joyful submission, Paul says, from our very hearts, as if we were working for the Lord Jesus and not our terrible boss, whoever that may be. Certainly not 
anybody here at our church. Something unique here we see, as we saw with wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, we see this mutual relationship. Wives submit, husbands love. Children obey, fathers do not provoke to anger. Bond servants obey, and now we see this mutual command, which is interesting, isn't it? In verse 9, masters do the same to them. What is the same? Loving them, serving your bond servants, doing good to them. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening. Now, this is interesting that Paul always goes to this mutual sort of thing because this is, what, this is not what we would expect. In the first century, if you have an address to women to be submissive, you would expect it to end there. Wives, submit to your husbands because, well, you're a woman and he's a man and that's the end of the story. Children, you better obey your parents because you're just stupid kids and they're your parents, so that's the end of the story. Slaves, you better obey your masters because they own you for a period and you better do what you're told. Period. But it's interesting that in the gospel we see demands from both sides at every turn. Wives, husbands. Children, parents and fathers. Bond servants and now masters. And what Paul says to masters here is a revolutionary thought. In verse 9 he says, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. This revolutionary thought that both slaves and masters have the same Lord or master, and that is God. And he said, and there's no partiality with him. In Christ there is neither slave nor free or male, nor female, or rich, or poor, or whatever our distinctions might be, there is no partiality, to, partiality with God. And he is the master both to the slave and to the free. This is more than the typical household code. There is mutual love, mutual respect, mutual joy, and mutual humility built in here. What do we see as we kind of come to the close of this section? We see those all-time favorite virtues of submission, sacrifice, obedience, condescension, and humility. And then we see, on the other hand, the response of love and adoration and goodwill. Now think about how from the very beginning we see this as the calling. Just as God loved you from before the ages began and chose you in Christ to be his own, Ephesians chapter 1, sealed you with his Holy Spirit, redeemed you with the blood of his Son, made you one in Christ. Not only do these principles, should these principles be exemplified in the body of the church, humility, unity, peace, love, gentleness, submission, but they're to go all the way down to our personal lives, especially in their, our homes. And as we come to the end of that section, we would say, but why? What does this have to do with that bigger picture? Well, number four tonight, we see that this is about Christ and his church. Running through this whole section, and it's unique among the household codes. Remember in Colossians, we had a similar statement. 
First Peter, we had similar statements. But never do we have these statements with the household codes intertwined with this theology and this immense weight of the picture of Christ and his church. It's only here in Ephesians that we have this tied right into it for us to see very plainly. Paul says this is more than about husbands and wives and marriage and children and parenting and the workplace. There are big cosmological theological realities here. And it comes in that section on marriage in chapter 5, verse 32. Look at what Paul says. This is the profound mystery, he says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This is about Christ and his church. Wives submit to husbands, he says, as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife because Christ is the head of his church. So the husband and wife relationship is to mirror the Christ church relationship with the head and the body, the husband and the bride. A husband, it says, who is also our Savior. It says, husbands, in verse 25, love wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? How, how, do, how are we to know how Christ loved the church so as to love our wives? Look what it says in verse 25. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loved the church in that he laid down his own life for her. Not because she was clean and righteous and pure. You understand this? Christ laid down his life for his church not because she was clean and righteous and pure, but in order to make her clean and righteous and pure. There was no value in you or me. There's no value in the bride of Christ, the church, except that which Jesus gives when he pays the price for us. Now, we as husbands have a different kind of gift from God. We don't have a bride, a wife, a mate to whom we give value. Jesus gives the church as his bride her value. But we are tied together as equal image bearers in the likeness of God from the beginning. So if Christ laid down himself for something far less, how much ought we to love our wives as equal partakers, remember Peter, of the inheritance that belongs to us in Christ? If Jesus the Holy One laid down his life for a bride in filthy rags like you and me, how much more should you, husband, a sinner saved by grace, love and sacrifice for your wife, who is the same? We are both brands, as the Bible says, plucked from the fire, both broken, both depraved sinners saved by God's grace. 
And now let this relationship that we have together as husbands and wives be one of grace and mercy and love because that's what Jesus did for us. Paul says in that verse, verse 32, this is exactly, this is exactly what marriage is about anyway. This is the point of marriage. It is about Christ and his church. Your marriage is a living, breathing, moving proclamation of something. Your marriage is proclaiming something to your neighbors, to the world around you, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family. Your marriage is proclaiming something to them. Is it a proclamation of the gospel? Yes, we understand our husbands are not perfect. We understand our wives are not perfect. But do we speak highly of them to those around us? Do we praise them? Do we encourage them? Do we support them? Do we show grace and love and mercy? Because after all, we are but sinners saved by grace. Is that what we're proclaiming to those who know us and know our marriages? Or are we proclaiming something else? Wives, are you lovingly submitting to your husbands as to the Lord? On the flip side, husbands... Are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? And then we see these relationships under that umbrella. Parents and children. Is is your relationship with your children that of a kind heavenly father to children who will never be perfect? Is yours a loving, kind relationship between a Lord, a master, an employer, an employee, bond servants and masters that's proclaiming something about what it means to serve Jesus and proclaiming something about what it means for Jesus to be Lord of us? Someone, said that intentionally, someone is being proclaimed in your relationships. Is it Jesus? Or is it you? Something is being proclaimed in your relationships. Is it arrogance? Is it pride? Is it rebellion? Is it hate? Is it bitterness? Is it disobedience? Dare I say, is it abuse? Or is it the grace and love and mercy and peace and humility of God? Every relationship the crown jewel being marriage, but every relationship ought to be a reflection of what God has done for us in Christ. Oh, marriage is the chief, but Paul puts these under, others under that umbrella too. Every relationship ought to be a reflection of what God has done for us in Christ. Of what God in his mercy, as we saw in chapter 1, has done. Choosing us and setting us apart for himself before everything. Redeeming us through Christ. Sealing us by his spirit. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. This is part of what it means to be made as a workmanship of God. Yes, saved by grace alone through faith alone. But saved to be a workmanship that does good works. And how that overflows in the body life of the church. And how it overflows into your homes and your personal life. 
we really come to the end of the household code and the end really of the letter because the last part's more of a closing, uh, closing uh, postlude, if you will, that kind of shows this is what we're in for. This is the fight we're in for. We'll see that in May. As we come to the end of the main body of the text, this is what Paul would emphasize. May all of our lives be a proclamation of God's grace in Christ. May all of our lives, every single facet, every part, in the church, at home, in the family, in our personal lives, may every last part be a proclamation of God's grace in Christ. Because when you talk about your marriage, your family, your children, your work, whatever relationships you have on your mind tonight, we're not, we don't all have the same ones or the same combination, whatever relationship it is. You say, what's the big deal about my relationships? The big deal about your relationships is that it's telling the world something about Jesus. What is your relationship? No matter what it is that you have in mind, what is it telling the world? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you for tearing down every dividing wall of hostility, animosity, and anger, and bitterness. Thank you that your blood is sufficient for these things. Whatever burdens, whatever burdens your word has laid on us tonight as husbands, wives, parents, employees, employers, friends, family members, whatever burdens the, the word has placed on us tonight by the Holy Spirit, we know that your blood is sufficient for every one of those tasks. And we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to obey. And though we don't have a step one, step two, step three plan tonight, we see these big overarching pictures and themes of what it means to live as grace-filled, redeemed people in our homes, in our churches, and in the world. Teach us tonight as individuals as we leave. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Apply these words to us, wherever we are and whatever our relationships are. Apply these to us. Plant these deep in our hearts. And help us to bring forth fruit that looks like you. Help us to bring forth fruit in our relationships that proclaims what God the Father has done for us through your person and through your work, Lord Jesus. Do this tonight, we pray in your name, by your spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.